Hello and welcome to the very cold open of Real Small Talk. I'm joined here with Trevor. How are you? Hey, I'm good, man. How are you? I'm excellent. Uh, we're here to make a couple announcements yes. uh, before we get the today's episode rolling. So first off, the the like good news that we hit our listening goals for the year already Ooh. without without the last three episodes even up yet. So that's neat. Yeah, three super awesome episodes. Ugh, it's going to be good. So going forward, we have, uh, like I said, three more episodes. Uh, episode five is only going to be me. Uh, that's the one you're just about to listen to. Episode six will also be just me and an anonymous guest. And then episode seven, Trevor makes a comeback. Um, and we interview together another anonymous guest. So there was always going to be some sort of break uh, to separate the seasons. Uh, the first part was definitely just... Uh, they all shared the the same goal. The The second part will be somewhat of a departure from, from the first part, but still just genuine conversations making making small talk with with interesting people yes so um like i said the next two episodes are going to be just me i was wondering if i could get trevor to share um (laughs) so these these were all recorded just to just to fill you guys in these were all recorded in December and January. Yeah, now it's March 14th and it's still snowing outside in Canada and it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's really nice. Nice light <laughs> dusting out there. Oh my god. Um so Trevor was super busy. He's he's always super busy to be honest. <laughs> but all for the better. Um yeah, so he couldn't he couldn't make it for two episodes. He trusted the podcast to me, which was nice. Um but did you want to share with the folks what you were up to by chance? Yeah, I mean, I was doing, I'm in medical school, so like we only get so much time off and I had some time off and Michael asked me if I wanted to do this podcast thing about this blog thing that we had started before. And I was like, oh yeah, let's do it. And then I always do this thing where I say yes to everything and then don't have the time to commit to everything. And we uh, we were able to, to record a bunch of the episodes and then there were two episodes that, ended up, I had to go back to school and, um, start some clinical rotations. I was doing a rotation in pediatrics and applying to residency positions. So residency is the thing that you do after med school before you actually, uh, so you become a doctor after medical school and then you get trained in a specialty. And so, uh, I'm really stoked to be joining the team at the university of Toronto family medicine, uh, for my residency. And that's kind of what I was up to. So oh, you won't hear me on the next two, but the last one, uh, I came back for a really good friend of mine. Um, and it's going to be a great discussion. So in case you missed it there, Trevor is like so tantalizingly close to being a real life doctor. <laughs> and it's so awesome. And that is a much bigger announcement than he played it off. He's like, he, all of his training is finally a thing and it's and super so is, awesome so is the super... that comes with the training but we'll talk about that that's that's true i'm sorry uh, maybe we'll no. have a student debt, student no. debt episode next season yeah nice um speaking of which with the listening goals uh 
we we've essentially promised you folks a second season. I've had a lot of interest um, yeah, from some, potential guests, some dope people who have like really cool stories. It sounds like yeah. So the the feedback I've gotten from the first season has been really really neat. Actually, the it wasn't the people you know I expected to hear from necessarily, and and uh, a couple people came up to me expressing like why why isn't a new episode up it's you got me hooked on this and and now there hasn't been an episode up so i'd like to thank you all for your patience um but a couple things were in were in limbo i suppose and yeah hit them what do you got what are you doing so i just accepted a job with the score as a baseball news editor so i'm super excited about that all those little articles that go to your phone yeah the best uh the best the score is the best app i don't know i love it it is seriously the best app yeah and i'm already the hype man for <laughs> for the company i think i've got i've I've actually like before you even had this as a dream like the like i've been looking i was looking for a great app that would let me look at all my sports news and stuff and like i will still get screenshots from the people that i showed the app to about like, I don't know, right now NFL free agency is a big thing. So my roommate keeps sending me screenshots of that. And like, he's like, oh my goodness, it's so exciting. And, and now it's going to be you writing that stuff. It's amazing. It's so cool. Hopefully not NFL free agency. Yeah, no, but MLB free agency though. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Yeah, dude. Okay. Um, That's super exciting. So I'm super excited. Unfortunately, the caveat is both Trevor and I are going to be super busy going forward for a little while at least until we get settled into our new our new roles in life and yeah. uh, that but. likely means new episodes won't go up until the fall. Some things we wanted to change from season one was that I kind of want to record these at, and post them as we do them going forward. I don't particularly want to pre-record and have them sitting anymore because well, like many reasons chiefly of which is probably that some of our guests have gotten a bit antsy. <laughs> so, and I don't want to keep them waiting, you know. They had a really fun, I think, rewarding conversation. Uh, and they, it's, it's mean to keep that from them. So uh, I want to put them up a lot quicker, which means um, setting aside time. And that will come in the fall we're hoping so hopefully by october you'll hear a new episode from us and uh and i'm really looking forward to to the people we've we've discussed uh talking with um i don't want to say anything about them because they you know we'll keep it keep that hush hush we want to keep it exciting yeah so a cliffhanger i think that concludes the announcements yeah, let's get on with the show. All right. Enjoy uh, just me discussing Canadian literature with my former professor, Joel Bates. Yes. More than three years ago, Trevor Mori and I created a blog devoted to the sharing of opinions in a positive space. Trevor is now well on his way to becoming a doctor. He hosts a podcast called This Clerkship Life, committed to helping medical students cope with the rigors and added responsibilities of clerkship. Most recently, he returned from Tanzania, where he volunteered at Together We Can, a women's center NGO located in Moshi.
My name is Michael Bradburn, and I am a humanities graduate. Through a passion for baseball and statistics, my enthusiasm has gotten me published on sites such as SB Nation, Baseball Prospectus, and Sports on Earth. I have made appearances on 99.5 Paducah and Beyond the Box Scores In Play podcast. A little while ago, I came across a quote from Bill Nye. Everyone you will ever meet knows something you don't. Together, along with you, we're going to test that. This is Real Small Talk. Hello and welcome to Real Small Talk. My name is Michael Bradburn and I'm joined here today by Professor of English Literature at Trent University, Joel Bates. How's it going, Joel? Going well. Hi, Michael. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. Um, so you're here to discuss Canadian literature with us today. and Everyone's was, favorite topic. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and um, for those listening, I was a student of Canadian literature of Joel's. And uh, so we will try not to get too insider about it. So why should the average person care about Canadian literature? It's, it's funny because I think that's a kind of question that has plagued, haunted Canadian literature probably since its inception. Right? There's always been questions about whether or not people should actually care about Canadian literature. Uh, John Metcalf, who's an editor at a really great small press right now. He's also a really well-respected author. Uh, he's been very bombastic in his judgments about Canadian literature, calling large periods of it largely crappy, I think, right? And he's talking mostly about uh, early Canadian literature. Uh, but there's every in every period of Canadian literature, there's somebody slagging, somebody important slagging it, telling people that they shouldn't read it, that it's not good enough. Uh, that it's not important enough, that it's not exciting enough. Northrop Fry. Now, Northrop Fry years ago was the most respected thinker in Canada. When he writes about Canadian literature, he even acknowledges that there are large periods that people should be reading, not looking for best, not looking for how good it is, but reading uh, in other ways, looking for other kinds of ideas, finding it interesting or important because of its history or context. So I think uh, your question of, you know, why should people care about it is one that's uh, been plaguing people and plaguing Canadian literature for a long time. So, so go ahead. Yep. Is is Metcalf Canadian? Just yes. Out of curiosity. Okay. Oh yeah, and I should have said full time editor, full time curmudgeon, right? Like he's sort of carved yeah. out a reputation for himself that I think he would admit to. Uh, carved out a reputation for himself for for being a kind of standard bearer and protector of Canadian literature. Okay, so, um, why, um, so I, I appreciate that him saying that is detrimental at all because you don't agree? Well, I'm not sure it's detrimental. Like, I, I think there have to be open and honest conversations about the quality of literature and about the quality of Canadian literature. Uh, I also think that we have to be open to the possibility that we might be reading for reasons other than encountering great mind-blowing life-altering literature 
that we might just want to see a piece of the world or our history ref reflected back at us. Right. And that's separate from reading something that's going to change our life or stay with us for all times. And there are those moments in Canadian literature, but that's maybe not the only reason why we should read it. And uh, I think one of the great things about people like John Metcalf, uh, people like Stephen Hennigan, people like Northrop Fry, is that they open us to the, up to those they open us up to the possibilities of having those conversations. Uh, a few years ago, and I'm trying to remember how many years exactly, two years ago, three years ago, uh, Alice Munro had just won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And uh, I thought that this was sort of like shooting fish in a barrel, that this was going to be an easy way to win over students. We're going to read a Nobel Prize winner and yeah. talk about a Nobel Prize winner in class. My encounter with students always around the, has been always, sorry, my encounter with students uh, around the work of Alice Monroe has always been one of difficulty. I always feel like I'm trying to convince them that it's good. And students are, and you might be the exception here, Michael, are in large measure resistant to seeing the quality of work that other people see. Uh, it's at those moments that I'm reminded that quality is always subjective. It's also at moments when we're talking about John Metcalf that I realize that those conversations are also necessary. So there's a weird balance that I think we need to have, realizing that one, we read for a multitude of reasons. Two, quality is always subjective. And three, we also need to be honest about the kinds of qualities that we're finding in Canadian literature. Yeah. Um, so you make good, large points. For once. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, with, with Monroe mm -hmm. in particular, I think she becomes inaccessible because a lot of people haven't read very good short stories. I think the short stories you get handed in high school, for instance, mm -hmm. scare you away from short stories. They're not, they're not especially good. And I think I've also chosen the wrong stories to introduce people to Monroe. There's, uh, there's one short story menace a tongue that I've never been able to convince people was actually a good short story. I think you were oh, in a yeah. class one time. Yeah where we talked about it, uh, I've never been able to do that story justice. I think it is good and it's complicated, but it's the failure is always mine, right? And I just, I think I've chosen the wrong one. There are other stories, Vandals always works well or works better than that one. Uh, so I think I have to be careful which ones I select or, or hand out to students or talk about with students. Yeah, I agree though. It's it, when Monroe won the Nobel Prize, I went on you know, social medias and stuff yeah. and went, oh my God, a Canadian won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Everybody care. And nobody ever cared. And I even, um, on Instagram, I did like Woman Crush Wednesday and put up a picture of Alice Monroe, who's a like 80-something-year-old lady. And people were like, take this down. This is, this is bad. And uh, I don't know. I was mm -hmm. like making a joke about the condition of social media to crush on women on Wednesdays but mm. I mean that wasn't what it was about I don't know so I've always found as a as a Canadian I've found you you go to these kind of stock Canadian author characters where it's 
you get introduced to Atwood, especially Margaret mm-hmm. Atwood. Mm-hmm. And that's who a lot of your education for Canadian literature revolves around. Mm-hmm. And if you find her inaccessible, then a lot of people won't help you through that. Mm-hmm. Do you, where do you think the uh, appreciation for Canadian literature goes awry? It's always easy to say it's someone else's fault, right? So I own yeah. those moments when uh, I choose the wrong short stories. But I'll tell you the way that I was taught Canadian literature in high school and a little bit in elementary school, uh, but mostly in high school, it was this. Uh, we were handed a few short stories uh, by Canadian authors. I think namely it was W.O. Mitchell's Who Has Seen the Wind and... Margaret Lawrence's A Bird in the House. Both wonderful pieces of Canadian literature, and I I think Margaret Lawrence, who's sort of faded from scholarly view, faded from other university courses, uh, gets a kind of unfair reputation right now, or has an unfair reputation right now as being dry or boring. And it's, I think, because people have, for so long, been fed a steady diet of Margaret Lawrence stories in high school, and been taught them in ways that make them inaccessible or less interesting than they actually are. So the way that A Bird in the House was taught to me is uh, was this. One, I think we read it for maybe two or three months. So that's a long time to spend with one collection of short stories. Sure. That drags things out. The other part, the part that I remember, and I'm probably not doing justice to the way that Mrs. Dick taught me grade 10 English. I believe it was her. Uh, or was it Mr. Reed? Whoever it was. Uh, what I remember mostly about Margaret Lawrence's Bird in the House is that the prairies in the 1930s were a tough place to live. Right? And this, this was set in Manitoba, growing up in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, people die, people are suffering. Uh, and I think the main lesson out of it was actually a history lesson. So they were using literature in order to teach us something about history, which is a tough way to appreciate some of the really difficult and big ideas that are in A Bird in the House. One of the, There's a wonderful moment, always a moving moment for me, at the end of, not the, the A Bird in the House is the name of a collection of short stories. It's also the, the title of one of the short stories there. There's a moment in which the daughter, uh, Vanessa, <clears throat> has uh, discovered, spoiler alert, a former affair of her father's, or uh, maybe not an affair, a uh, girlfriend that preceded her mother, and found a letter from her to her father or the father to her. And she ends up, in a way to commemorate her father's memory, who has just died, she ends up not storing that letter away as if to keep a piece of him, but she ends up burning it. That there's some way or some idea about commemoration that means forgetting. There's an interesting relationship between those two ideas that uh, I think that are even accessible to people in grade 10 or grade 11 or grade 12. That's not a post-secondary university kind of idea, but that's thinking about the ways in which we honor and commemorate the dead. Uh, Those are always accessible. And I think there's been a shift in how or there's been a long-standing tradition or pattern in how Canadian literature gets taught literature gets taught to people. 
and I keep seeing it, whether they're reading Margaret Lawrence or Timothy Finley or Margaret Atwood, uh, they're always coming into my classrooms assuming that Canadian literature is dry and boring and usually assuming that Canadian literature is history in disguise or sometimes in the case of Margaret Atwood, argument in disguise. So I have lots of thoughts about this, but I'm trying to, I'm, I guess I'm just trying to pull back a little bit mm -hmm. and say, like, think about how out of context Met, Metcalf could be talking about literally all of literature, largely a lot of literature, not just Canadian, is crappy. Fair. Okay. Yeah. So, and maybe a lot of people wouldn't call that literature. They just wouldn't call it literature. They'd call it, you know, fiction or another word. Literature okay. is usually a sure. reserved term for, for scholarly good fiction. Is that, does that make sense? Sure, you walk into an indigo right now. And there's there's the literature shelves, and then there's the fluff, the penny dreadfuls. Or maybe we'll say there's a literature shelf. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so That's fair, yeah. So maybe that's where Metcalf differentiate, differentiates his point by saying specifically Canadian literature is largely, largely crappy, where you wouldn't say that about literature in general. Hmm. However, there, I think, I think regardless of where the literature is from, I learned a lot through high school and through early university about the fact that the classics, even the classics are not ironclad, mm -hmm. where you, you read them and you go, well, this isn't nearly as good as I thought it would be. And I remember, so I read, um, Don Quixote, mm -hmm. which is not a very fair comparison because it's in translation and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And the windmills part was on like page 80 mm -hmm. something, and it's like a 500-page book. And I remember getting to that part and going, like, this is as far as people make it. That's the reason, that's the reason everybody talks about the windmills being the dragons, if, if you're unfamiliar mm -hmm. with that. And so I think, I think there's a lot of literature that scares people away from reading and I don't know if I see why why it is that Canadian literature is especially abrasive or pinned as extra boring does that make sense totally uh, you're you're making me think that to only say that the way that it's been taught is an ins insufficient explanation. What also might account for it, though, are the kinds of material conditions that authors have been facing in Canada for a long time, uh, where it's been hard to sustain yourself as an author or as a writer, as a poet, as a dramatist, sustain yourself uh, as an artist and not take up a particular job, not take up an, another particular profession. That there are material conditions that make the production of literature difficult that might either limit the amount that someone writes or might in some ways limit the quality with which he or she is able to write. I think what's also happening is those judgments are speaking to a 
a national inferiority complex, right? There's a, there's a long history of Canada, of Canadians just worrying that they're good enough uh, in comparison to the exciting history and literature in the United States, to the long and storied traditions in England, that there's all those judgments that it's largely crappy, that evaluation should not be the end of reading Canadian literature, that uh, we are propping up a cultural industry by forcing people to read it. All those judgments speak to a kind of national inferiority complex that is well-documented that I think everybody can easily see. So is there a possibility that Canadian literature picks up, like Canadian literature itself picks up on the inferiority complex that we have and then writes about our inferiority and that itself would just make it mm-hmm. less accessible. I don't know Nobody if that wants to read about presumably being, you know, lesser. Well, I think Michael, you just wrote Margaret Atwood's survival, right? That's, that's in generally speaking, that's one of her main ideas. She writes in 1970, 72 or 74. I can't, somewhere in that period, I can't remember the exact date. She writes survival as a handbook to Canadian literature. And she says her main thesis is that there is a single idea that unites all of Canadian literature. In the United States, it's the drive west. In England, it's the protection of the island. Uh, for Canada, it's survival, just hanging on. And Canadians are fascinated to read about and write about not losers necessarily, but people who aren't interested in or able to win, but people who just hang on uh, for dear life. Uh, And I think in your assessment or your acknowledgement of that, uh, you're in some ways writing or acknowledging even without reading survival, you're knowing that that kind of idea is out there. I think there are other ways in which that idea gets tackled, that there's a kind of inferiority complex, that Canada is a blank space that needs to be written or accessed or that people don't know. Uh, That idea has been around for a long time and existing in our literature for a long time. There's, uh, I think more recently, there's a, uh, a, a number of uh, not Canadian historical novels that are in some ways driven by the assumption that Canadian literature, Canadian history needs to be discovered. They're working from the assumption that the readership believes that Canadian history is empty or boring or a blank space. And they're driven by a kind of motivation to prove that to be untrue. That there were difficulties and conflicts and struggles and violences uh, and wars that we are not aware of and need to be made, made aware of now. So I'm not sure that makes it inaccessible. In some ways, that's one of the really interesting features of a recent body of Canadian literature. So what is it about Canadian literature then that captures Canadian identity? If if that's too broad, I can sharpen it. I don't know if it's too broad. I just, I find... The thing about that question is that it presumes that there is a Canadian identity to be accessed. Right. So right? I think to this be is, captured. I think this is a major struggle of Canadian identity, isn't it? That that they just maybe I'm imprinting the fact that 
I am Canadian and this is the way I think on too many people. <laughs> but we're, like, as a nation, I think we get pinned as we're, we're too contemplative. We, we think too hard and too long about too many things that look back and try to define us mm-hmm. instead of just, you know, being us, which other countries presumably would concern themselves with being. They just are, you know, England just is England, if that makes sense. And that's that's not fair either because, you know, Zadie Smith helps mm-hmm. write about different sides of England that you never see. And, you know, America just is America. And there's obviously people in America that wouldn't identify with certain texts written about them. I don't know, the Virginian or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just not. So I think that's where Canada is just different. So why... Why do we care about thinking about who we are? Why don't? Why aren't we just mm-hmm. who we are? Is that? Um, I think you're right to pinpoint the struggle for Canadians to define who or what Canada is. That's probably the defining feature of Canadian national identity, or one of them at least, right? If we were to create a, a, a catalog, that would be one of the main features, that there's always been a struggle to define who or what a Canadian is. I think that struggle, in very broad terms, comes from a place of anxiety, uh, a place about anxiety, about distance, from excitement, from a kind of confidence that comes out of the United States, that a kind of confidence that comes from England because of a long history of big books written by great authors, big ideas thought by really important people, uh, that'll, that there comes, there comes, uh, there is a kind of anxiety about always being deficient. And we're always seem to be in the shadow of uh, what's happening in the United States or we've left behind what's happened in England. And that's been going on for a very long time. I think one of the really interesting moments right now, though, is that that type of anxiety is seen not as a kind of deficiency, but as a kind of advantage. So it's not a bug, it's a feature, right? That it becomes one of the things that's going to separate Canada as it moves into the future. Uh, That our ability to live with the ambiguity of not knowing who Canada is, I'm speaking very generally in this case, or being uncomfortable with who Canada has been, uh, that's going to keep us from slipping into the kind of arguments and conflicts that are now dominating the United States and that are dominating uh, England uh, and the rest of Europe. Right, because they're having, they're both going through divisive times, you mean? Yeah, they're both going, there's a kind of confidence that comes from, uh, that is at the base of conservatism, right? This is who we are, here are the traditions we need to conserve. Right. And Canada is, sure, generally a conservative nation, but not in the same way and not to the same degree. There's always a kind of anxiety about who we have been and who we were, and always a desire to renovate 
those traditions, those understandings, those histories. Maybe not fast enough for some people. Uh, maybe not to degrees uh, that would satisfy all people. But I think there's a kind of openness to reconsidering who Canadians are or have been that doesn't always exist in other countries. When, um, it, it just got me thinking, when John Tory opened or unveiled the Luminous Veil at the Bloor Viaduct, so there's mm. a there's a bridge in Toronto mm -hmm. that uh, happens to be, happens to have a very high suicide rate off of it. Mm -hmm. And they put up a guard to prevent suicides, and it was always kind of a, mm -hmm. kind of a dark mark on the city of Toronto. I think that that we're aware that people are trying to kill themselves, but by fixing it, we're going to build a fence to keep them from doing it instead of you know, fixing the underlying issues. Mm -hmm. um, like you can't you can't just take away where people are going to kill themselves and assume the issue of suicide will mm -hmm. fix itself. Mm -hmm. But anyways, they decided to light it up and treat it as not a like like kind of you were saying it's not a not a bug of Toronto but a feature. It's yeah. it's now something to be um, not celebrated but but Honored, memorialized, yeah, commemorated, sure. Uh, and during his speech, he said uh, the Pan Am Games were just about to start, and he said uh, the city of Toronto is full of complainers. And he didn't, it's weird for the mayor of the city to tell the people that voted him in, mm -hmm. you guys whine too much. And it was just over the, uh, like, commuter lanes, the HOV lanes, the, yeah. the lanes you weren't allowed to use unless you were a cab working for the Pan Am Games or had three or more people in your vehicle, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Anyways, this is a long-winded way of saying, do you... Agree. Is is Toronto a good measure of of that for the rest of the country? First of all, and then second of all, do you even agree with the assessment that Canadians or Torontonians tend to complain about their station? Because I think where I'm going is yeah. I think I see that in Canadian literature. I don't know if it's complaining. I think it's worrying, wondering. Uh, there's a kind of self-conscious consideration about what our history has been, what our current station is in life. And I'm not sure I'd equate people who are wanting to complain about HOV lanes to the kind of worrying or wondering that happens in Canadian literature. Uh, I think those are two different kinds of worry. Right? Yeah. One is sort of a thoughtful consideration of the violences of our past, right. uh, the oppression of various peoples, uh, of our concern with whether or not we'll ever live up to the promise of our image of ourselves. And the other is, will I be able to get to work fast enough? Yeah. Right? Those are two very different that's kind fair. of complaints. And I think that sort of speaks more to maybe economic inequalities that are mapped onto the city of Toronto where people have to drive long, drive long distances for work rather than where uh, public funding for public transportation has been meager at best 
that's a different kind of worry and wonder and concern than what happens, I think, a fair bit in Canadian literature. Do you think reading Canadian literature then makes you a more... I mean, this, it's a it's a semi-loaded term to some people, so I don't really want to get into that, but just like little P progressive. Oh, let's be controversial. Just, here, okay, okay, yeah. deal. Okay. So would reading Canadian literature make you more coherent? So there's arguments in NFL football that the Washington professional football team should change their name and that the Cleveland professional baseball team should change their name. But at the same time... But there's a right and a wrong to that. Like those aren't those. There are arguments, but there's a right side to that and a wrong side to that. There's, there's I have a hard time. A right. in, sorry. There's only a. Those should clearly change their name. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're talking the same thing. Yeah. So okay. they should clearly change their name. But at the same time, we have a football team in Canada called the yeah. Edmonton Eskimos that has not changed. And yeah. I went to a, a high school around here and the local lacrosse team was called the Redmen. Yeah. So I went to McGill, which is called the Redmen. Yeah. And it was, I think just years before I got there, it was changed from the mascots were changed, uh, from an obviously racist depiction of an Indian warrior to, they rewrote what the mascot actually meant to a Scottish warrior, I believe. I can't even remember what what it, what the transformation right, was, but they didn't change the name; they changed what it meant. So uh, they made it. I Mount know Gibson. of what you speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know of what you speak. So that was a long way of saying yes. Yeah. So, so Canadians, I, I don't want to paint all Canadians with the same brush, but like myself, I mm-hmm. look down on the American propensity to keep that name and I don't want to paint all Americans with the same brush either mm-hmm. there are many that uh, want the name changed and I'm all in favor of that and I don't I genuinely don't understand how it hasn't changed mm-hmm. however I'm not I'm not posting petitions to change the local lacrosse team name I'm not posting mm-hmm. petitions to to change the CFL team name so are we as worried about our past as mm. Canadian literature makes it seem? I hope so. Yeah. You know, it uh, depends which fiction we want to believe in. I think if we were making that roster of features of Canadian identity, uh, some people would really want to vote smugness onto that roster, right? That they'd want to point out how smug and, and quietly superior Canadians feel to Americans. Uh, as you're pointing out, sometimes hypocritically. I also believe that there is a kind of openness, a kind of concern for various peoples, for various ideas that doesn't exist everywhere. That Canada has a a related but distinct history to the United States. Uh, And we won the lottery by being born in Canada. Uh, there are very few police places that I'd want to live in other than Canada. And I say that from a privileged position. Uh, white male in a relative, from a relatively stable economic background 
there's a kind of privilege that uh, allows me to say that. And not everybody, of course, would say that in Canada. But I think by and large, people would choose Canada over a number of other possibilities. Not saying, though, and we should not, though, exempt Canada from uh, having to examine its own history and its own uh, current debilities and tensions. Well, like I'm really thinking about that idea of worry, right, and concern that comes up in Canadian literature, whether or not that's a necessarily national feature. Like it's hard to say, read something like Lullabies for Little Criminals by Heather O'Neill and to say the worry that Baby in that novel has for who she is is a national worry because uh, Canada very rarely appears in that novel. But there is, or there remains, I think, a, a kind of... The dominant figure in Canadian literature might be the worrier. Might be someone who researches and reflects and considers rather than someone who acts. So, must Canada appear for something to feel like Canadian literature or something to be Canadian literature? No, it can speak to a particular national characteristic, right? And that's the way you would read the nation into the novel or uh, a kind of that it participates in a national conversation about the environment, that maybe it's not explicitly made national in the novel but it exists elsewhere or um, someone's journey Canada isn't mentioned but it's a journey that's familiar to a number of Canadians going away and coming home uh, immigrating to Toronto but moving back out right yeah or to big city centers and moving back out so no it doesn't have to be uh, but I have a hard time the most can- Canadian thing about say lullabies for little criminals is not the consideration that baby has for her status as a girl uh, I think it has more to do with the way in which that particular novel manages or thinks about the relationship between an urban center and a rural center but that's a conversation that's uh, we'd have to really get into the novel in order to have that conversation yeah so I guess, yeah, what I'm thinking is where it relates to... I don't think I read any other nation's literature and think about or see the nation's identity. And that might be... There's a, there's a couple reasons I think that can exist. First, mm. I'm not that nationality. Yeah. So it never really occurs to me that... I mean, I'm not identifying things the same way if I read... I don't know, White Teeth by Zadie Smith keeps mm-hmm. coming to mind there's parts of that 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 ring like extra english to me extra english like there's just a Mm -hmm. like there's clearly england in that novel but there's not really clearly england in um i don't know even this one's gonna sound weird to you probably but like great expectations where it's like obviously Mm -hmm. about Mm-hmm. England, but there's no point where I go, 
this feels really English to me. Yeah. So I don't know why. Are we thinking too hard about Canadian literature and the fact that Canada, I don't know. Are we thinking too hard about Canada? We have to allow national literatures to say something, to speak about topics other than their own nation, right? Uh, and that's what would make them interesting and rich and maybe even good and not largely crappy. That as soon as we start saying, for instance, that lullabies for little criminals can only say something about Canada, then we're either bad, we're probably bad readers, but we've also done something terrible to the novel itself to say that it is only allowed to speak about uh, a particular national identity that it has no interest in talking about. At the same time, we also have to make space for the possibility that novels written within a particular constituent of human, constituency of humanity, within a nation, uh, can reflect upon the ideas and stories that have been circulating in that nation, even if they are not named explicitly as national. So sometimes I find the pleasure in reading Canadian literature is seeing that history and those ideas reflected back at me. This is what it means to live in small town Ontario. Right. This is what it means to live uh, on the coast of everything. Uh, if we're talking about a novel that's set in Vancouver. Or here's what it means to be a girl growing up in 1980s Montreal. Or here's one version of that. Uh, there's a kind of pleasure in identifying, seeing those stories and ideas reflected back to you in a very artful way, in a way that allows you to see those locations, uh, those peoples, anew. So I, I think I think this is where I want to head next. Is there a... Is there an author that... I mean, this is a really unfair question. Is there an author that best epitomizes Canadian identity? Where should people begin to search for Canadian identity where would people go like to to someone that doesn't so so I I can't remember the context but I had I had a similar conversation with someone just a little while ago and they said oh that's such an American question right yeah. I'm not sure that's true but that was their immediate smug response let's find the winner right I don't, I don't think that's that's kind of a hypocritical Canadian thing to say and I'm not sure I would say, here's a novel that sums up Canadian national identity because that assumes that Canadian national identity is a stable thing right. that one novel can capture. Uh, I think in that case, if we're just going to say, what's a really interesting novel that allows you to see something interesting about Canada or Canadians? Um, this might be an unpopular choice, but... A kind of story that I think speaks well to a lot of Canadians is one that, or a lot of Canadians' experiences, is Tales from Froshebog by Rohin Mystery. And Tales from Froshebog is a collection of short stories that starts, and most of them are set uh, in India, in a small compound called Froshebog. 
and it's about some of the characters experiences in that compound but also their dreams to come to Canada and the kinds of dreams and disappointments that they experience here in Canada and it's moving and it's wonderful and funny at moments that might surprise and so if I was going to suggest one thing that people could read that would sum up a particular common Canadian experience that would be one of them uh, we could also talk about stories by Tom King, which I think are kind of essential reading. Uh, plays by Thompson Highway that are, again, essential reading. Stories by Alice Munro and Margaret Atwood that tell us something about, sure, maybe national anxieties and national fantasies, but also the kinds of anxieties and fantasies that have taken place in and that do take place in Canadian locations. Uh, all that being said, my current two-handed recommendation as in you must read this book is lullabies for little criminals by heather o'neill it's probably the most moving thing that i've read in the past 10 years uh, i'm hard pressed to think of a better novel i've read novels that are equally good but i've been hard pressed to read a better novel than lullabies for little criminals it's it's interesting to me that the novels <laughs> that's that, good i'm glad it's interesting <laughs> <laughs> the it's interesting to me that the novels that i identified with through my time studying canadian literature seem to be and maybe this is because they were picked by joel but seem to be uh about coming to canada or not not necessarily about it but Many characters mm -hmm. in many of the novels are not from Canada or like, yeah, are, are immigrants or um, deal with life away from Canada at some point in the novel. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a certain, there's a certain identity captured by comparing, is Canada being compared to other countries by doing that? Is Canada being witnessed from an outside area? I don't think it's a matter of comparison. I think it's just such a common story, right? It's not the only story. Of course, uh, Indigenous peoples have been here for long periods of time. Uh, there's a number of Indigenous writers, Tom King, Thompson Highway, right. Gregory Schofield, uh, uh, Eden Robinson, who have been writing passionately and interestingly about their experience in a territory that will later be known as Canada. At the same time, another dominant experience has been what does it mean to leave one country and arrive in Canada? And sometimes we read novels that are about that experience directly. What does it mean to leave one place and arrive at a new one? Other times, we're reading that kind of experience in miniature. Uh, so we don't see long-form stories of immigration, but we see people walking from one state of mind to another or from one small place in Canada to another. What does it mean to cross this country? What does it mean to get try to get from one place to another? Uh, Hardcore Logo is, is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's um, Bruce McDonald directed... Uh, lead singer of the Headstones 
and I'm I'm forgetting his his full name Hugh, something. Uh, I'll remember it in five minutes once the podcast is over. <laughs> anyway, uh, Hardcore Logo is really wonderful movie. It's a mockumentary in the style of Spinal Tap, but it, I think it's I would say it's better than Spinal Tap. But it comes from I know right blaspheme I know, <laughs> uh, but it comes from a collection of poetry by Michael Turner called Hardcore Logo, and what's lost in the movie that comes across in the collection of poetry that the movie's based on is that this punk band's travels around Canada, its difficulty of achieving anything that's great or wondrous or discovering anything of import, is that that's such an old story for Canadians. What does it mean to try to cross this country and achieve something great? Uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about the story of Terry Fox. Why is Terry Fox such a long-standing narrative? Why is it such a cultural touchstone for so many people in this country? And I think it's because it tells a story that's familiar for Canadians. What does it mean to try to get from one end of the country for another to another? And I think the fact that he doesn't make it makes the story not just all that more compelling and moving and sad, but it also it's it's such a familiar story. It's such a conventional story by Canadian terms. So many journeys have started in one place, tried to get across Canada, and failed. And Terry Fox's story somehow repeats that long-standing cultural narrative. Canada's so big that it's difficult to cross. So these stories of immigration, either from one country to another or from one side to another, they get repeated over and over and over and over again. I think that's probably what you're speaking to is the frequency of that, that narrative. It's a literary narrative, but also a cultural narrative. It's just interesting that I, I mean, they identify with, or I identify with those stories, and I have not. I've basically not left Ontario. And yeah. Ontario is a big province. It's not, it's not especially strange i mean i've gone east i've not visited a province west of ontario and there's more than half of the country over there so if we were going to think about that we'd probably think about uh, sure how unusual or how unconventional that might be in a number of literary or cultural narratives but we might also think about the other ways in which you've traveled right uh that are not physically related right so uh your work on the podcast, your baseball writing as a kind of venturing out or venturing forth into other worlds uh, that is trying to, in some ways, break free, move away from a small town Canadian experience. Uh, I think that that's more of a common narrative. What it means to live in a small town is another subset of Canadian literature. Uh, of Canadian cultural narratives that happen. Uh, I can't remember where this term comes from, but uh, there was a paper at some big and important co- conference called Canucksploitation Narratives. Uh, so taking uh, a turn of phrase like exploitation and turning it into Canucksploitation or hoser comedy or small town comedy. Uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie, yeah. uh, Red Green, uh, Letter Kenny, Letter Kenny yeah. is, now the, is now the one that, that's circulating now. These are all... Uh, exploitation comedies or, or stories about small towns about people who never leave uh, and then said see the the craziness the weirdness um, the tensions the torments 
the hilarity of living in such small confined places, especially when the irony always is, especially when Canada is such a big country. Okay. So I think we're going to wrap it up there if that's okay. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much for joining me.